Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Colin Ellis, and you're listening to On Docs, a podcast about documentaries and the stories they tell. Today we're discussing My Octopus Teacher, the Netflix documentary that explores the relationship between filmmaker Craig Foster and a little octopus in a South African kelp forest. It's a hard thing to explain, but sometimes you just get a feeling and you know there's something to this creature that's very unusual. There's something to learn here. My Octopus Teacher is a meditation on our relationship with the natural world and the extraordinary beauty that lives under the sea. Given our current pandemic state, it was great to visit a place I've never been before, even if it was through the eyes of someone else. Joining me to discuss this is someone familiar to OnDocs listeners. It's former OnDocs producer Chantal Berganza. She's currently a senior editor at Chatelaine. Chantal and I talked about the bond between man and octopus, what the film taught us about the natural world, how it compares to other nature docs like Grizzly Man, and whether either of us would eat an octopus ever again. Stay with us. Well, Chantel Braganza, welcome back to On Docs. Hi, Colin. <laughs> Hello. Uh, many listeners will remember you are well. You were our uh, first producer. Yes. Yeah. The first and, couple of seasons yes, of On Docs. Exactly. Yes. Well, uh, we are here to talk about the film My Octopus Teacher, which is a Netflix documentary, and uh, I really enjoyed it. What did you think of it, though? I think I watched it. I mean, I watched it, I think, maybe even the day it came out, but it was kind of the right time for me to watch a doc like that. Um, I don't think I'm alone in the sense that, like, I don't think I'm alone in uh, having spent way more time indoors than I'd planned to this year. So watching something that takes place in the natural world and a part of the natural world that I have virtually no access to was just very refreshing. Do you think if you hadn't been stuck indoors, you would have been less inclined to watch it? Um, I think so, probably. <laughs> um, yeah, I've been watching a lot of nature docs lately. Any faves? Um, faves. A lot of Blue Planet, more just like ambient type stuff, David Attenborough narrated type yeah, that makes, So That makes sense, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a bit about the the subject of the film. Craig Foster, he's a, a filmmaker. He he founded the something called the Sea Change Project, which promotes the importance of the kelp forests in South Africa. And um, you know, in the beginning of the film, we learned that he's he's suffered from a bit of burnout. And uh, I guess I wonder what you thought of him as a subject. Um, definitely relatable. I think for a lot of people, also for myself, to see someone. Um, struggle with burnout, uh, talk about this very narratively neat way that he worked through it. Um, and also, you know, had the benefit of being very visually beautiful. Um, but yeah, just the way that he talked about how it became so difficult for him to make new films after however many years that he was doing, um, docs, he, he did nature docs for so much of his career that he got burnt out on the subject itself. I had to have a radical change in my life. 
only way I knew to do it was to be in this ocean with her. And then I had this crazy idea. What happens if I just went every day? Yeah, I'd never heard of him before, and I, I wondered if the doc didn't provide enough information about him. That's true. I mean, I, I also wasn't really familiar with his films. Um, but I think just like the concept of being so exposed to something that you love, but because it's part of your work and because it's the thing that pays your bills after a while, this thing that you love gets very hard to engage with um, because your relationship with it is entirely defined by work. I think that's yeah. relatable. I, I don't know if um, you necessarily would need to know of his filmography to, to get that or to understand where he's coming from. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it, it, I mean, I'm not a filmmaker, but I, I can definitely see how stressful it would, would become, especially if you're doing uh, documentaries like he is. Yeah. Uh, well, he, we should talk about, you know, just where he is. So he's in, uh, in, uh, he does diving in a body of water called false Bay, which is just off the coast of South Africa or sorry, uh, Cape town, South Africa, and uh, doesn't use scuba diving equipment. And he's managed to learn how to breathe underwater for pretty long time. I'm not sure exactly how long, but you know, the way he, what you see him uh, discover under there is just this incredible kelp forest and all these amazing creatures that uh, we don't really get to see in, in, in Ontario, such as like pajama sharks. Uh, there's crabs oh, under there. Yeah. <laughs> great name. Yeah. Uh, not as scary as you'd think, although maybe for certain species they are, um, but just a ton of beautiful marine species and, I can see it being very captivating, but I wonder if you find that kind of life under the sea appealing as well. I think underwater and <laughs> I think underwater life is scary as hell to be <laughs> honest, but it is very beautiful. Um, there's this point at the beginning of the duck where he describes the kelp forests. I mean, he grew up there. He swam in those waters as a child. So he describes it as, you know, the forest of his childhood and trying to get a viewer to see something that to see a kind of landscape that they wouldn't otherwise be very familiar with or have access to, or would look very alien to them as a literal forest, because that's what it is. Um, was just a very nice way of looking at it. And I think helps at least help me look at it with a little bit less uh, apprehension or fear. Hmm. Yeah. Fear is an interesting word because I I'm a city kid and I didn't really have experiences like that where I could go to a place like uh, Cape Town or, or, you know, visit like underwater. Like my parents never took us anywhere that we could do something like that. And, you know, we didn't, uh, yeah, we just didn't, we, and we grew up in Toronto, like I said. So uh, I wasn't exposed to that kind of um, lifestyle. And, you know, if I was to be put in that situation now, I think I'd be like a little terrified because it's just so like, to me at least very, it seems very daunting. I think for a lot of us too, that, that kind of experience with the underwater world, if we don't, you know, based on where we live too, that would more often than not be mediated by tourism. And I think that affects the way that you see what it is you're seeing and how you engage with it. Um, you know, for, for this guy, it's, it's his, it's his home. Um, and we don't necessarily always appreciate the natural landscapes of the places that we call home or treat them with respect. But um, I think, I don't know, just to go back to talking about the, the tourism aspect of it. Like if you, if I were to, you know, have just dropped in there for a week and, and been snorkeling or cold water swimming there for a couple of days and 
be overtaken by the beauty of it. I, I think it would just be a very different experience and something I'd probably remember differently and think of differently. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we should talk about the octopus in the film. Uh, the subject, <laughs> the title of the film is called My Octopus the Teacher. teacher. And it does. Yes, the teacher. Yes. Um, well, you know, he builds this relationship with an octopus. You know, he discovers her and, uh, you know, it's the same octopus. I, I, I don't know how he knew that. But anyway, he, he develops this kind of relationship the way someone might develop a relationship with a stray dog or cat. What did you think of this? Of their relationship? Yeah. Um, it was really nice to see. I think because of its status as something that is often preyed upon by other animals, that it takes a lot of work on his part to gain its trust or to gain her right. trust. I think he says that the octopus is a girl. Um, and that. Yeah, I don't know how he knew that. I don't know how I knew that. I don't know how he knew it was the same <laughs> octopus, but he did. And yeah. I mean, that's also probably possible through daily exposure. He went to visit it every day for a year. Um, yeah. I wonder on some part, I mean, this isn't a criticism of the doc so much as just thinking about the way that we tell stories about animals and our relationships with them, that trying very hard and telling a story about a friendship that you build with an animal that, you know, realistically you can't um, think from its perspective. You can't uh, like over anthropomorphizing it, <laughs> if that makes <laughs> sense. Um, yeah. There was just always like this undercurrent of just knowing or wondering just like to what extent is, are the things that he's, projecting on this animal um, possible for him to know for sure. I hope that doesn't well, sound cynical. No. Well, I mean, you mentioned anthropomorphize and usually I feel like when you do that, you, you also kind of give the, the creature a name and he doesn't really do that. I mean, he, he always no. refers to it as a she and uh, yeah, I, I mean, it, it, he is projecting his own, I guess, thoughts, but I, I don't know. I guess I thought maybe he was, um, it was kind of a way for him to, I guess, um, build trust with her, I guess. Yeah. And he seems aware of it. I mean, he did build a whole, like a whole documentary around the concept of them building a friendship, but he does seem aware of the, that kind of the difficulty of being able to say some of these things for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but he's but, also studying her too, right? Like he's, he he's researching about octopus and, um, you know, understanding, you know, the kinds of the way it hunts and the way it defends itself. Like, so he, you know, there's a bit of, there's a bit of observational kind of observation. Yeah. Science, I guess it. behind it. There's just this one point where, um, you know, the, the whole overarching thing is the, how he comes back to his love of filmmaking through building this friendship with this octopus and cold water diving for a year. Um, but, you know, not to ruin a plot point of this story at one point, the octopus loses an, uh, an appendage. Mm -hmm. um, and grows it back. And he makes a point of trying to take that thing, this thing that's happened to this animal and discuss how it mirrors his own life, that he was slowly growing back, you know, a lost limb that for him was his ability to make films, um, which is, you know, it's poetic and it's very beautiful. It's just Probably if you were, if you were, if you were, if you were having a friendship with an animal that was able to respond to a, a concept like that, like, I don't know if 
the octopus friend would necessarily see it the same way, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he, he kind of also struggles with whether or not to interfere with the octopus, right? Like when, when she does lose her, that appendage, you know, he, he, he actually gives her food, right? Cause she's so weak mm-hmm. and, you know, can't really move. And I thought that was, I mean, you know, you could argue that he's interfering just by being there, right? Like, I mean, his presence is definitely, I mean, foreign to that uh, species or that environment, I guess. Um, but I just thought it was interesting that he, he kind of wrestled with whether or not to do that. Cause I think most of us would probably just do it. Right. Like, or, or I don't even, to stop the, or try to, yeah, well, I mean, the most, the most exciting parts of the film are these, these chase sequences where, you know, like, so the, the octopus is uh, pr- number one predator is the, the shark, the, the pajama shark. And these aren't like, you know, jaws sharks. These are like a little smaller, but they're obviously a threat to the octopus. And it's honestly the most harrowing filmmaking, you know, I've seen in a documentary because it's just like, like you are, you are rooting for that octopus to get away. And the way it manages to hide and defend itself is very like incredible. It's a great action sequence. It's a, it's an incredible action sequence. It's like on the shark's back and it's, you know, no, it was like, it's alien versus predator, man. Like (laughs) it's just, (laughs) um well you know something else that that i thought about when i was watching the film was um it kind of reminded me a little of of Werner herzog's grizzly man which is one of my Mm -hmm. favorite docs yeah that follows you know another uh person who's uh very involved with uh animals well this this one being bears and uh, his name was timothy treadwell and he was an environmentalist and he was uh, very unfortunately killed by a bear as well as his girlfriend uh while they were filming do you think there that 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 Treadwell and and uh, uh, Foster have anything in common? I think. I mean, I don't know if either of them, if you could ask them both at the same time, would agree um, about, say, the way that this, their stories are framed. Um, but there are similarities, even if they're not to the same degree, of the way that both of those docs talk about these relationships that they build with animals as being a way to heal some kind of thing inside them that's dysfunctional or broken. In the octopus's case, uh, it's burnout and an inability to make films. And in Timothy Treadwell's case, it's recovering from, you know, this completely stymieing um, uh, addiction and, uh, you know, being completely crushed by, I think he, he'd like, tried to become an actor and it didn't work out and it just completely ruined his life for a few years and bears were the way that he found a way back to himself. Hmm. Um, and both of those docs use that as a way of explaining the seeming obsession with trying to connect with an animal or trying to connect with an animal as being a solution or a, a thing like a very healing thing. Um, but I don't know if either of them would see that as exactly the same. Yeah. The way I sort of like saw the comparison was just that, you know, they're, I think, well, I think more so in Treadwell's case than in Foster's, but you know, Treadwell seems to have sort of a naive understanding of nature and also of bears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at one point in the film before, I mean, his death is, is at the beginning, but so it's not a spoiler, but you know, he, Werner Herzog shows how, bears like the male grizzlies will actually kill the the cubs 
to because they want to like be with them with the female and it's just like the viciousness of these of these animals uh is something that treadwell kind of doesn't really i think appreciate and i mean with uh foster you know i mean like he's not as i think like naive to the the realities of being underwater but he you know because he he does acknowledge that you know <laughs> the octopus is uh got a hunt and then it's also going to be hunted um but i just thought like the fact that he's so i don't know um hmm, how do i put this i, I think mean, the fact that he oh sorry go ahead sorry well, no, just the fact that he um, he's almost kind of intimate with it. He's almost trying to be a part of, of the sea in some way. Yeah. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It's still observational. I, I guess, I mean, maybe it's the part, part of it comes with the way that he sees his role in whatever this relationship is. I mean, like you've mentioned before, he does try to maintain some kind of observational distance, even if it's not always possible. But with Treadwell it's very clear. And he says this in his own words, because a lot of the footage is his, he sees himself as a protector of these bears. And like the only person who's going to speak for the bears and stop the poaching and uh, get upset about park ranger rules about what he can and can't do when he spends summers there. Um, Right. Yeah. And there's friends who say that, you know, over time, over years of having spent so much time there, that he would, uh, his behavior changed, and that in some ways he saw himself as a bear. I think, which is just, it's a very different, it's a very different way of seeing yourself and how you're relating to an animal and the story that yeah. you are trying to tell about what that relationship is like. I mean, it's, 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 it's Herzog's documentary, but it's entirely built on, it's Herzog telling a story about the story that Treadwell was trying to tell himself. Um, yeah. Whereas with, with, with uh, my activist teacher, it's Foster kind of, uh, he's, he's the ultimate like narrator, yeah. even though he's not the director, he's still the one that's telling his story and he's, uh, he's still alive to tell it as well. Foster, you know, he spends about, I guess, 18, no, no not 18 months, about a year with this octopus. And the octopus's lifespan is only about 18 months. So he, he probably spent most of, he spent about most of her life with him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a long time to spend on, on, on something like this. And I wonder if you think it was worth it. Um, if I have this right, he did this almost 10 years ago, the daily dives the friendship with this octopus was almost a decade ago. And he obviously, it obviously had enough of an effect on him that he felt a decade later that he still wanted to tell this story and that he wanted to use it as a way to talk about not only him recovering from burnout, but also just be an advocate for the natural world. Um, I would think so. Even if, I mean, even if this experience never resulted in him being able to make films again, even if he never made another film again after um, this one documentary of this experience he had with an octopus, um, if that experience was able to do that for him, I I would say so. Well, it it does come at a, I don't know if it comes at a cost, but, you know, he, 
he does have a son and you know he he's going down there every day and i mean i mean i think eventually it brings him closer to his son you know he's able to bring his son there and you know his he notices how much of a, an interest his son takes in being in the water with him but i guess i wondered you know as a parent could i do that <laughs> you know what i mean like um, that's a great <laughs> question i i mean there's almost no information available to know um he doesn't he doesn't give enough information to really understand some of the things that like might be hinted at but you 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 can't really tell for sure i mean he says at the beginning to describe his like his state of like brokenness is probably the wrong word but to describe like the bad place that he was in that he wasn't the father that he wanted to be that he couldn't make work and yada yada I, i i like concretely i don't know what that means and i don't know what that means for his son I can imagine that if you're, you know, a young teen or a tween and you're seeing your dad going out to do something every day and it really matters to him, um, you'd probably be very interested in wanting to learn more about what that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, beyond that, I, I mean, there's just no, there's no information. He doesn't reveal anything. Maybe he doesn't have to. I don't know. No, maybe it's, you know, it's, it's kind of nice the way it, it, it's sort of left unsaid, but I just thought, it, you know, as a, like, I, I'm not a parent, but I just, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like that would be a very uh, difficult thing for me to, uh, to do is just to kind of uh, go off and deep dive every day and kind of <clears throat> leave my family behind. I'm not sure if I could do that, but then again, I've not been burnt out from filmmaking. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm also not a parent to a teenager, so. Not yet, anyway. Not yet, but we'll see what that's you may, like. You may get to the point where you're going to have to start deep diving in order to... In Lake Ontario. With yes, the lampreys. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'll make a document with <laughs> my mean, friendship with the lampreys. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, actually, I, I don't know if you read any of the reviews of the of the film. I, I was reading one reviewer, and I don't, know how, I don't know what to make of this, but they compare the relationship between the octopus and Foster with the film garden state garden because, state. uh well okay so the movie garden state where it's zach braff and, and yeah. um, natalie portman and this is where the manic pixie dream girl it's not where it came from but it's it's she is that manic pixie dream girl is basically uh, a trope in films where mm-hmm. uh the female the female love interest is there to kind of uh bring life to the male protagonist who's kind of a sad sack and uh needs to learn to love again and love life and everything like that. And that's basically what she, the octopus in a way does for foster in this reviewer's <laughs> mind. <laughs> I thought it was pretty, I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was actually a kind of funny review. I don't know if that, if you think it makes any sense, but that's what I, <laughs> I mean, it's, I guess, I don't know. One of the big complaints about manic pixie dream girl, like as a concept is that the, the women who are being written into these, into these functions are written so at the expense of being actual actualized characters themselves. Right. And so I just, I mean, you can talk for however long you want about whether or not it's fair to anthropomorphize an animal and your relationship with it to your own narrative benefit. But I just, I just don't see it being the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess well, that's just well, a first glance. It's just, uh, it just doesn't strike me as the same thing at all. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was a funny comparison. I don't know how true you can really say it is. Cause again, it's not like, uh, 
it's really like that octopus is real. It's also an octopus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I you mean, can't write that. You, Foster has tried to with this doc to get into the mind of the octopus, but I, I mean, yeah. how do you make it an actualized character? I don't know. That might yeah. take someone who's far more familiar with them. Writing about animals, writing animals and writing them on film than I am. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the octopus creature, I mean, it does kind of show up in films from time to time, at least not uh, like he's usually as aliens. And I mean, sometimes they're called mm-hmm. that aliens of the sea. You know, I mean, the most obvious thing I can think of is is arrival, the aliens and arrival. Well, the heptopods. Just like octopus. The hectopods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I just think that's interesting that, you know, even though we are always seeking for life, extraterrestrial life, you know, in outer space, you know, we have this, these, this life underneath us, you know, that's all, well, kind of all over us that we still don't really understand, I guess. Mm-hmm. And an, an octopus is such a good example of that. So. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, you're, you work for Chatelaine and you focus on food content and I guess <laughs> I wonder if, uh, you know, octopus is a delicacy in certain parts of the world. I wonder if you've ever tried one or would you ever try it? Um, I have absolutely eaten octopus before multiple really? times. Yeah. Um, I mean, it it's delicious. I definitely have not eaten it as frequently over the past couple of years. Um, there was, I think it was Eon Magazine did this long form feature about octopus intelligence. It's something that I think a lot of people with an interest in the animal world um, is just a very interesting story about animal intelligence, but octopus intelligence is just famously operates so differently than anything that we know about the animal world. They evolved so completely separately from so many other life forms. Um, Most of their brain resides in their tentacles, they feel and learn and um, express themselves in ways that are just completely unusual, um, but also extremely identifiable to the way that we live our lives. Um, and after reading it, like I remember there being details in there about the writer meeting an octopus that decorated its hovel um, that would change into a very particular color whenever he came around to to see it. So it was like a very similar. Hmm. Similar story to my octopus teacher. Um, But just after reading that, it just became a little bit more difficult to enjoy eating octopus, even though it's delicious. Um, And I know that we always make very personal decisions. If if you do eat meat about which animals are okay and not okay, and it always becomes like the sliding scale. Um, But yeah, it's definitely been a little bit more difficult in the past few years to, to justify it, at least for myself. But they are delicious. I've never, I don't think I've had it. Um, I guess the closest I've had maybe is like calamari. I don't know if that counts, but um, I'm not a, I'm not as adventurous an eater. And uh, the one thing that actually uh, swayed me from ever trying octopus was the movie Old Boy. Oh, <laughs> why? I haven't Have seen, seen it. Old Boy. I oh. haven't seen Old Boy. Well, uh, this is kind of a spoiler for people who haven't seen Old Boy. Uh, do you mind if I say it, what it is? I, I don't mind. Old boy is, if I have this right, like 50 to 20 years old. So it's a, well, it's like from like the early aughts, I think. Okay. And so the scene involves a man eating a live octopus. 
Oh, cool. Okay. Like just like 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 straight like on the plate. Like he just takes it, put it in his mouth, and eats it. Like it's it's. I I don't know how long it takes for him to eat to eat the whole thing, but it's it feels like it goes on for like ever. And I, <laughs> it's the most unsettling scene in a very unsettling movie. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't. I think it was actually more than one take he did. <laughs> with a different octopus i don't know how we managed to do that but that's a thing apparently and uh i i just could never after that after watching that i just was like i'm never touching an octopus that's disgusting well in in most in most preparations it's usually cooked so if you ever i don't know if you ever feel curious and there's a place that cooks it in some like tomato sauce makes a little like nice octopus diablo or something <laughs> just give it a shot uh, if you want we'll see well we have to wrap up our conversation but uh i guess you know since this film is called my octopus teacher i wonder if it taught you anything um it definitely prompted me to re-ask questions about the way that we tell stories about animals and the way that we look at our working lives and how the concept of doing what you love um isn't always the dream fairy tale story about work that we tell ourselves it is. What she taught me was to feel that you're part of this place, not a visitor. That's a huge difference. So yeah, I guess, yeah, it did did teach me something. Me too. Taught me uh, to appreciate what's underneath us and to have an open mind when it comes to uh, the natural world, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Chantel. Oh, thank you for having me. And that's the podcast. My Octopus Teacher is now available on Netflix. If you like what you heard, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, and better yet, tell a friend. If you want to get in touch, you can write to us at ondocs.tvo.org, and you can also follow me on Twitter at colinellis81. Thanks to producer Matthew O'Mara, editor Donnie Swanson, production support coordinators Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell, series producer Katie O'Connor, and executive producer for digital Laurie Few. We'll catch you at the next screening.